Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Um, well, I'm excited to preach today. Today is going to be awesome, and I really believe that God has a word for you, and I've been thinking about this a lot in this context. Lord, as a pastor, how do I prepare people for what God has for them? That's my job. And I think when you start using really amazing words like favor, we can start to think that it's going to be easy and that we're not going to have any problems. But the reality is the Bible says God is the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. But I wish he would say that he's the middle. <laughs> like I'm going to start something and I'm going to finish it the way that I want, but it doesn't say I'm going to make the middle perfect and not going to have to go any, through anything. Matter of fact, our church is named after a place that people need in the middle. You're traveling in the middle of the desert, and if you don't hit an oasis, you're gonna die. And an oasis is a time of refreshing in the middle. And so as a church, we can never be mad when people come and go, because we want them to come and go. We're the place that God has ordained to meet someone in the middle. Somebody's in the middle of something. And so um, I've taken this a few weeks off from preaching, and really didn't feel like I was in a place spiritually to get up here. And what I mean by that, it doesn't, you don't have to be in a broken place to not feel like you wanna preach. But, but you have to, I have to do this from overflow. So something has to flow out of me. I can't be trying to bring it up. And I didn't feel like a place where it was overflow. And the more you're not in overflow, the more you're going to deficit. Matter of fact, the, I believe the opposite of overflow is deficit. And every time you do something spiritually and you are not filling yourself up, and so every year I, I usually do something like that where I take weeks and weeks and weeks off and feel like I want to get a word and get, a, get in the right space. And what God has told me multiple times is from the passage of Scripture that I'm going to share today. He's just been speaking to me a, a, a clean heart and a right spirit. A clean heart and a right spirit which is what I'm going to preach from today. Uh, psalm 51, verse 10 and 12. This is the writer David writing this psalm. And he says literally what I feel like Lord showed me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. A willing spirit. You know, this took place after David had committed literally one of the worst acts of sin any human could commit. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. And David had a lot of unique abilities and gifts. One of his abilities is that he could play the harp. Um, another ability was that he was a great warrior. I don't see how those two abilities can live in the same person. Anybody ever seen, we have a worship leader, Megan Tibbetts, and she plays the harp, and she goes, ding, 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 ding. And she always sits there, and she's just barefoot on her Instagram, and it's so beautiful. That was David, yes, she is. Look it up, facts. And then come to me and apologize. Um, and she plays the harp, and that was David's instrument. You ever remember, David in 1 Samuel 16 was literally playing the harp. Ding, 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 ding. Just smile on his face. Not the drums. You think a warrior would play the drums or the bass. I love the bass. No, a harp. And then the next chapter, David cut off Goliath's head and walked all the way back to Jerusalem with a decapitated head. I, he went from ding, 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 ding to who? 
is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the armies of the living God? You wouldn't think the harp guy could defeat Goliath. Come on, somebody. Anybody ever been in the hood and almost got jumped? I love you. I don't know what instrument you play, but you don't get the flute player. That's not my first choice. You don't get the clarinet player. No offense if that's your instrument. You got to get the drummer or the guitar. But they went and got the harp player and the harp player. And so I think that God loved David because David had this ability to use the harp. Now, I want you to fathom that a man was that skilled with the sword that he could kill a man that was 10 feet tall, but yet when Saul was trying to kill him, th this is weird to me, Goliath was trying to kill him and Saul was trying to kill him. Are you tracking with me? Saul was the wicked king that came before David. Saul was trying to kill David. Goliath was trying to kill David. But with one person, God wanted David to play the harp. The Bible says that David played the harp for Saul, and when David used his anointing and his gift, all of a sudden, his enemy made peace with him because of his gift. But this enemy who came against God's people, you got to use the sword. So when an enemy comes against you, that's weird. I don't, put, I don't pull out the sword to kill somebody who's... But if they're trying to hurt somebody God loves... So David had to have this dynamic to use the harp and the sword, depending on the situation directed by God. And I think as believers, we need to be able to have both. One person said that every man should have the capability to be violent. Because if they don't have the capability to be violent, being peaceful is not a virtue. How is it if there's nothing in me that's being restrained? Come on, you got the ability to cuss somebody out and then you go, God bless you, brother. God bless you. God bless you. But if you don't have the ability to do the opposite, then what you're doing is not a virtue. You got to be fighting against something. And so David did this, but then he gets in this situation that we're going to read about and, and this moment of Psalm 51, he's in a profound moment of despair and repentance because he has sinned. And he's saying, create in me a clean heart and a right spirit. And we're going to read about what happened to David. 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 through 2 say this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Uh-oh, somebody say, uh-oh. Let me just back up a little bit. The Bible says, at a time when kings were out to war, David was at the crib. So he only saw the woman that he's about to commit the worst act of sin in his life, the only reason he saw that woman is that he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Can I submit to you today that you are getting ready to commit the worst sin in your life, not because just you're a bad person, but because you are going somewhere you ain't supposed to be. My mom used to make us come home before midnight. Why? As long as you live in this house, you're going to be in this house until midnight. When we turned 18, she moved it to 1230. And I'm like, Mom, we're 18. She said, boy, don't nothing good happen after midnight. So I moved it to 1230 to give you time to get home. So you better not party nowhere that's more than a half hour away. Because you're leaving that place at midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. 
Like, mom, and I ain't never done nothing good after midnight my whole life. So my mom had set up these boundaries to try to keep me from doing something. But David, she tried to keep me where I'm supposed to be. After midnight, supposed to be at home. So she knew that bad things were happening if I wasn't where I was supposed to be. David was supposed to be at war. David was supposed to be filling his calling. David was supposed to be filling his purpose. And he wasn't. And so he saw a girl named Bathsheba taking a bath. And now you already know. You already know. He saw Bathsheba and he went like, Lord. But that's the wrong way to do that. He looked at her, and he's supposed, here's the thing you have to understand. The Bible doesn't say resist temptation. The Bible says flee from youthful lust. But we really want, come on ladies, you don't want, you want your, your husband or your boyfriend to resist. You don't want them to run. You want them to resist. Because I mean, if someone is resisting, that makes you feel good. But if they running, You come in the house out of breath? <laughs> what happened? Man, I saw a bad one outside, so I took off. <laughs> Don't no woman want to hear that. But that's what the Bible says to do. And how many of y'all know if your husband said that to you, you wouldn't be like, good job. Did you get away? No. <laughs> Wait, who are you running from? <laughs> Man, she was cold. I had to run. No, flee from youthful lust. So David didn't run. You got to read this story. David didn't run. The Bible says he invited her to come through. He, he, I'm, I'm using the SBV version. I said come through. The SB is the San Bernardino version. So he texts her, come through. Come on, some of y'all been had a text after midnight talking about come through. And, and let me tell you something, as your pastor, never answer how do I say this so I don't, people don't get offended? A gluteus maximus call. Don't answer it. Can I say it that way? Can I say it? So David shot the text and was like, pull up. She pulls up. He, he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And I'm, again, this is San Bernardino version. She gets pregnant. Then he's on the Mari Povich show and Mari Povich says, you are the father. Right, is everybody tracking with me? Now you gotta read this because I'm giving you the San Bernardino version, but this is what happened. And before I was saved, it was my dream to be on the Mari Povich show. That's how lost I was. And I wanted to be the guy that took off running when he found out that he wasn't. You are not the father. And now that I got saved, that is no longer my dream. I'd do anything to be on TV back then. So he's on the show, David's on the show, Mari Povich says, you are the father. Then the scriptures say that when David finds out he's the father, he invites uh, Bathsheba's husband to come home from war. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to sleep with Bathsheba so he can pass off his baby as Uriah's baby. Because if, if everyone finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant, uh, her husband was off to war. So he tries to get Uriah to come back from war. He sends message to his generals, bring Uriah back home. And the Bible says that David gets Uriah drunk, hoping that Uriah goes home and sleeps with his wife. But Uriah says, I, I, I don't know why you called me, but I got to get back to battle. 
And Uriah refuses to go home to Bathsheba because his men are on the battlefield. Now that didn't convict David. Not only are you not where you're supposed to be, but you're trying to set up the okie doke, as my grandfather used to say, because you, this is the real sermon. I got to write a version of the Bible. And then David tried to set Uriah up for the okie doke. Y'all be like, man, this is good. I like this translation. So David tries to set Uriah up. Uriah wants nothing to do with it. Uriah goes back to battle, and now David doesn't want to get found out. So he sends a message to Joab, his general, to say, put Uriah on the front lines of the battle where the fighting is fierce so he will be killed. Joab does this, and Uriah dies. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife so he can act like this baby was a plan the whole time. This is a man who God says he is after my own heart. And I need to give you this context so when we read about what he said in Psalm 51, it makes sense the gravity of his sin. So we're going to catch up a little bit to Psalm 51. I'm just giving you a quick Bible overview. Now, I want you to read all these passages of Scripture because maybe you'll get a revelation out of it that I'm not giving you. But you got to read this whole story. It is profoundly powerful. So in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 through 2, uh, in the spring, uh, sorry, I already read that. Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is after David did all this trifling stuff. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. You see where the prophet's going with this? David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Can you imagine Someone come in and tell you, you know what, and you don't even know where your sin is. Somebody did this, 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 and that. And you're like, well, somebody got to die. And they go, that man is you. You did that. You have everything. And now I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that I don't believe we talk about enough as far as the goodness of God and what God's heart is toward his people. We're going to keep going. It says, Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This arguably is my top five passages of scripture in the Bible, and I'm sharing it with you today. Because God says to the prophet Nathan, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into all your... You have to understand something. David was being persecuted and killed by Saul. And, and God's solution for persecution was not to give David, get David out of it, 
It was to give him all his persecutor was trying to protect. So when you get persecuted by culture, when you get persecuted at a job, don't always fight against it. Sometimes we break out the sword when God says, no, 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 play the heart. Because if they keep doing that, I'm going to give you what they're trying to protect. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the influence. I'm going to give you the money. He said, I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And this is the line we don't talk about enough when it comes to God. Because God says through the prophet Nathan, and if all this, somebody say all this, had been too little, I would have told you to be content. No, if all of this would have been too little, I would have told you, you unselfish, you ungrateful fool, look how much I've given you. If all this had been too little, I would have told you, you need to find what it means to be grateful. No, if all this would have been too little, I would have given you more. What? He was telling David, you felt discontented and you didn't come to me. And you tried to create something out of your discontent that is not of me. So you could feel content, so you could feel safe, so you could feel affirmed. You tried to create something that I want to give you. You're trying to create an identity through your job, your career, your sexuality, and I want to give that to you. So it's not bad that you're doing that. It's bad that you're doing that without me. You should have an inner desire to want to know who you are, but you cannot create that. If who you are isn't enough, if what you have isn't enough, come to me. I, I can do that. I, I can do that. I've never heard this until I read this scripture. I'm always taught that if you don't like, we always bash believers who want to be influential, who, 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 who God told David he'd make his name famous. You know, God is trying to make somebody famous, but only someone without an idol. Yeah, right. Only somebody with the right heart. Only somebody. And David was in a bad spot, and the prophet told him, I wish you would have came to me. Oh my God. Where do you go? when life, the life that you're living doesn't feel like it's enough. Where do you go? What do you do? This is so important that we get this. So the Bible says that David immediately repented. Immediately repented. And then we're gonna pick up in Psalm 51 because not only did David repent, but David started to ask God for a few things. And if you read all of Psalm 51, I don't have time to read it, but I want you to. David starts to ask God for something. Number one, David had the audacity in the middle of his sin to ask God to do something. But I want you to catch what he asked God to do. In the beginning of Psalm 51, I'm not going to read it at all, but it, but it, because uh, we're going to pick back up in verse 10. But, but, but Psalm 51 verses 1 through 10, David is only asking God to do three things or to do one thing. He's saying, will you remove my guilt and my sin? Will you remove my guilt and my sin? There is always a counterfeit in the culture for the removal of guilt. And I'm going to break this down to you. Because the world wants to remove your guilt. And so I believe that the world's motives for removing guilt 
is through affirmation of what you do. Even if it's against the Bible, they want to affirm it because they don't want you to be guilty. And that is a noble cause. No matter what hyper-religious people tell you, that's a noble cause. They don't want you to feel guilty. The problem is, is that God wants to do the same thing. He wants to remove your guilt by grace. So affirmation means it's okay. Grace means it ain't okay, but since I'm God and I say you're okay, you're okay. One requires authority. The other requires inclusion. But God has the authority to say, you good. I am? You good. It's like going to a car lot, right? And when you go fill out a credit app, they're not affirming your credit score that you could put on the back of a basketball jersey. If your credit ain't good, they don't give you the car. They don't say, no, your credit says it's bad, but it's good because I don't want you to feel bad. They march your butt right out of Universal City Nissan and you drive your same car you always had. They don't do that. God will say, your credit is bad, but you're good. What do you mean? You can have the car. But I thought you said my credit was bad. It is, but you're good. Because I shed my blood so you could be good. I'm not going to affirm what's bad and try to make it good. I'm going to shed my blood and say you good. Now, the counterfeit for the church is change. You need to change. You need to be different. Because if you look throughout the Bible, when Jesus gave grace to a sinner, it always offended the believers. So change is not the solution. Grace is the solution. And grace fills in the gap between transformation and where you are today. Do you know how important this is? This is crazy. David said through another prophet in the book of Acts, I have found a man after my own heart. Wait a minute. That means in the New Testament, this man had someone killed and God is saying, I have found a man after my own heart. And he had someone killed and slept with this man's wife and got it pregnant? He committed the most heinous, unbiblical sexual act that you could possibly commit. And, and then God is saying, I have found a man after my own heart. Here is where religions, Christians don't get it. You could be seeing someone commit the heinous, most sexual act that ain't nowhere in the Bible. And God could be saying, I have found a man. How is that possible? Because God knows the human heart. We only know the human behaviors. So these two people could be doing the exact same thing and God could be saying to that person, you wicked person, and to the other person, man, when you were a kid, everything you went through. So we don't know. Now we know what the Bible says, but that the reality is, is that God is trying to give every sinner grace. And if you don't get that, you are out of alignment with the word. Why? Because grace sets the table. It plows the human soul. 
for the truth, which is the seed of God's word. Every farmer would tell you that if you don't plow the ground, your seed is useless. So the grace plows the ground. It's the reception of God's goodness and his love, even though I am the way that I am. And then God gives you the Holy Spirit to lead you to the truth, which is why, David, I believe, although he did that, he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because unlike Christians, he asked God to remove his sin. And he asked God in the beginning of Psalm 51 to remove three types of sin, which are the three types of primary sin in the Bible. David said, God, I need you to remove my sin, I need you to remove my iniquity, and I need you to remove my transgression. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Sin, iniquity, transgression. God, remove all of it. Here's the difference. The counterfeit for you asking God to remove sin, iniquity, and transgression are people telling you, remove it. No, 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 you have to have a humble heart before the Lord and say, I don't want this. Never respond to a religious person that says, stop sinning. But you need to go to God and say, I don't want this. That's what made David a man after God's heart because he went through the levels. And you know what these words for mean? Sin, number one, it means to miss the mark. So sin, by definition, biblically, is not the act. It's the act of a person who's trying. Because it means to miss the mark. So if you're not trying to hit a mark, it's not sin. It's not sin if you're not trying to hit a mark. So sin is when I'm trying to hit a mark and I miss. That's not sin. That's the definition of sin. So he's like, are you saying that certain acts are not sin? No, there's three levels of sin. There's sin, iniquity, and transgression. So sin, oftentimes, is you have a revelation of what God wants, you're trying to do it and you don't do it, that's sin. That's why when Paul was talking about sin, this is so important. He said, what I wanna do, I don't do. Did you hear what I just said? When Paul talked about sin in Romans seven, he said, what I wanna do, I don't do. Why, it's not me, it's the sin. What I wanna do, I don't do. What I don't wanna do, I do. So the sin has to come after the revelation of what you're supposed to do. And the man, so if you see a person who is um, a non-believer and they have no revelation of what's right or wrong, yes, their actions are sinful because we're all born into sin, but they would fall under the second thing that David asked to remove, which is iniquity. Say iniquity. And iniquity is not missing the goal. Iniquity is the distortion of something good. So iniquity is something in you that wants to change what God says is good and make it something else. That's not a decision. It's something within you that wants to change what God is good and make it something else. I, 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 the, the, God says it's good to wait until you're married to have sex, but there's something in me that wants to change it. God says this about his word, about sexuality and identity, but there's something in me that wants to change that. That is an, an iniquity. And David wanted healing from his sin and his iniquity because what he knew was, he, it wasn't just sin, it was something in him he knew. There's something in me and I need it gone. That's what he was praying for. And then he said, God, will you remove my transgression? 
which is the breach of trust. Oh, my God. Most believers are not living in iniquity. They're breaching trust with God. They're doing something because they don't trust God. Come on, anybody got a time passer boyfriend? Make some noise. Time passer girlfriend? You've been waiting for your husband or your wife so long? This person will do. That's a transgression. You're not trusting God. Matter of fact, I would say some of you uh, uh, are, are called to influence and in, in using your talent and your gift in, in a creative space. And because you can't figure out how it's going to pay the bills, you transgress. I'm about to throw this binder after five weeks. Do you know that getting a nice, comfy, secure nine to five can be a transgression? Do you know that quitting your nice, comfy nine to five can be a transgression? It's based off your trust. If you don't trust God, your actions trespass and put you somewhere you ain't supposed to be. So, so when we deal with Let's say, um, you know, the Bible called this a spirit, a Leviathan spirit. You know, um, the twisting is the iniquity. There's something in me that's twisting what God says. It's twisting it, and it makes me think that it's right. And that person does not need, does not need someone shouting at them that it's wrong. It's already twisted. You ever seen something in a knot, and you can't get the knot out? And you can't get the knot out? That's what it is. So there's different levels. And David said, I have all these things in me and I need to know the difference. You need to know if your sin comes from a lack of trust because that's a transgression. You need to know what your inner desires are. We all have those unique inner proclivities and you're not better because some of y'all, your inequity is pride. And you think you're better because this one is sexual and we think we're better. And so we separate and divide each other based off what sins we think are worse. But yet God took someone who killed a man, slept with his wife and said, finally, I found a man after my own heart. How did God say that about David? Because God was not talking about David's old heart. Oh my God, babe, I'm about to kick this binder off this platform right now. Because God was affirming the new thing he had given David. David said, create in me a clean heart. So God wasn't affirming David's old heart. He was affirming the clean heart, the clean heart, the one free from fear, the one free from guilt, the one free from shame. And he knew that someone in David's camp would go to David and say, David, I know you killed and had sex with Bathsheba. Don't worry about it. You've done this. You freed Israel. You killed Goliath. I believe that right before someone was about to affirm David's behavior, God said, no, I don't want your guilt to be removed that way. I want your guilt to be removed by grace. The blood of Jesus is a stain and guilt remover. So sometimes the world and God has the same goal but a different approach. No matter what you've done, no matter who you're attracted to, no matter what you believe, God does not want you to have guilt. Guilt is illegal in heaven. Now watch what God does. This is the difference. The world removes the guilt in the natural. God removes the guilt in the eternal. So he removes it 
eternally. And then over time, it manifests itself in the temporary. So when did Jesus, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus dripped on the altar of heaven, dripped on the mercy seat. Matter of fact, the reason you can be forgiven, I'm getting real deep. The reason you can be forgiven is not because it, it, it's not a natural thing. The reason you can be forgiven, the book of Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus hit the mercy seat in heaven. And when the blood of Jesus, because in the Old Testament, they used to have to sacrifice animals and the priest would splash blood on a seat made out of mercy. Not a seat made out of truth, a seat made out of mercy. And when the blood hit the mercy seat, the goodness of God shot, uh, shot out of the, the temple for all to receive God's goodness. So the blood hit the mercy seat in heaven, so now you are forgiven and your guilt has been removed. Now a sinner free from guilt can learn from their loving heavenly father what the original purpose was, which is let us make man in our image that they may be like us. Have you noticed every single thing in the Bible that does not align with God's word? I'm not trying to be hard on anybody. Comes with an image. There's an image that represents everything. If you're a white supremacist, there's an image. If you're a Nazi, there's an image. If you're of this sexual proclivity, there's an image, a rainbow. Everything in life, they find an image so that when you see that image, you recognize yourself through the image. But God's image is himself. I'm, oh my God. It's himself. It's not a symbol. It's himself. So do you know how gracious it is that no matter what you've done, God wants his banner, his image reflecting in your life with all your failures. He's going, you, 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 I want my image on you. So I don't want another image. I want the image of God in my life. Do you know what would happen? if you had the image of God on your life? If you ever looked exactly like LeBron James and you were 6'8 and you were muscular and you put on a Lakers jersey and some, do you know you could take the court at the Staples Center? And for some reason you could pray a prayer and your image looked exactly like LeBron James. You know you could do what LeBron James does. You know you could take the, you know you could take meetings as LeBron James. You know you could go to the bank and probably pull out some money. Why? Because you are exactly like LeBron James and no one can tell the difference. Well, you imagine what you could do if you bear the image of Jesus? Peter once time said, hey, should we pay taxes? And, and Jesus went, well, well, whose image is on the coin? And Jesus said, Peter said, Caesar. And Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he didn't say, yeah, you should pay taxes. He said, well, that depends on whose image. If his image is on the coin, then give it to him. He, that wasn't a verse about taxes. It was a verse about image. So who should we give our life to? It depends whose image is on us. So if someone gives us an image or symbol that is not God, then we now belong to that image and we should give ourselves to that image. But if the image of God is on your life, then you got to give your life to God. So we don't rebuke and shout 
and yell truth at people, we tell them by the grace of God, do you know there's a better image? Do you know what would happen in your life? How did David do what he did? How did he get to this point where he had to repent? It wasn't suffering, it was searching. Do you have the su suffering of searching where you are looking for something that you cannot seem to find anywhere? That was David. That was David. And so he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I, you got to create a minute. I got to get rid of this sin. I got to get rid of these inequities. And I got to get rid of these transgressions. And if you ever do this responding to someone else, that person is your God. This, ain't, this is between you and God. Only God can do this. He says, I need a clean heart and a right spirit. He did not say, I need to stop doing this. Let me be clear. And that's what we're trying to tell the world. He said, clean heart and a right spirit. You know what a clean heart is? The clean heart is, is, the, is, is the part of our humanity that understands God. He's saying, I want to create where my thinking understands this, my emotions understand this, and my decision-making understands this. I need a clean heart. And then he says the right spirit, which is Bible scholars think, believe that a clean heart is your ability to understand God and a right spirit is your ability to understand what God is doing or to be able to do it. Clean heart, I want to understand. Right spirit, I want to be able to do what I understand. Do we tell people to pray for a clean heart and a right spirit or do we say stop it? Do we pray over people and go, Lord, give them a clean heart and a right spirit? No, because at the end of the day, grace is offensive. There's a piece of us that actually want people to face the consequences of their actions. We don't want them to get grace, but when it's us, we want grace. When it's somebody else, we want laws and truth. When it's us, we want grace. He's asking for the understanding about what the right thing is and then a new capacity, a new spirit to do what he understands. And then David had everything. And he goes on to say, and I'm gonna invite the team to come up, he goes on to say, I got everything, but I want you to do me a favor. God, I love you, but please don't take your presence. You can have the palace, you can have the career, you can have the crown, but can I keep your presence? Psalm 51:11. cast me not away from your presence. And please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This man was getting ready to lose everything, everything. And he said, hey, Lord, can I keep something? And I imagine God would probably be like, what do you want to keep, the palace? No, no, no. The crown? No, I'm good. What about all the servants? No. The money? No. All the fields and all the property you own? No. The authority over the people? No, not that either. Well, what do you want to keep? Your Holy Spirit. I just, at this point, if all I had left was your presence and all I had left was your Holy Spirit, I'm good. I wonder if that was the moment where God said, I have found a man after my own heart. Later, David would literally say, I've lived before God blameless because of his faith of what God could remove. He goes on to this in, in Psalm 51, 12, and he ends with this. And this is what I believe David messed up because he was searching. 
and there's a suffering that comes from searching. And so David in Psalm 51, at the end of this beautiful uh, repentance of prayer, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In the Bible, joy in the New Testament means grace recognized. Yeah, it's a sin, but you won't have the joy until you realize I've given you grace for that sin. Grace. When you receive grace, it gives you a joy. Now you have to be humble to receive grace because grace means this is wrong, but God is good and I need to receive grace for my wrongs and the grace that I've received for my wrongs gives me joy. Great. Joy is not truth recognized. The Bible says when you recognize truth, you will have freedom. So some of you are free, but you have no joy. Because everything in your life you work for. You don't let God do anything. You don't let people do anything. So you're walking in the truth. You ain't sinned in 20 years, but you're a crabby old Christian because you ain't got no joy. And you don't have any joy because you have not received the grace. David got to the root of the problem with his sin and said, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. What does he mean? I wasn't experiencing the joy that God saves. And so when I got in a situation, I'm trying to save myself by giving myself the desire that I want, by achieving things, by reaching goals. And everybody in this room has something that they think that if God gave it to them, they would be saved. It would get them out of it. An opportunity, a change in something. And David said, no, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he would cry over people before he corrected them. And he would say, uh, in Jeremiah 3, verse 33, our worship of idols on the hills, and come on somebody, our religious orgies on the mountains are a delusion. Only in the Lord. He didn't say they're bad. He said, oh, you're searching. The people that do that, you're searching. You're looking for something. And he says, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord, our God, will Israel, will L.A., will California, well, the United States, only in the Lord. You can do all that stuff if you want to, but only in the Lord will you ever find salvation. When we give you opportunities to be saved, that is not an atheist becoming a believer. The Bible says even demons believe God exists. Salvation is you believe that only Jesus saves. Not that promotion you're believing for, not that booked audition, not the husband or the wife you've been praying about, not the new opportunity. You don't need something else to get you out of what you're going through. What you need and who you need is Jesus.